These are supposed to be 20 to 30 year assets. And if you're not putting any money into that process beyond having it built, then is it really going to serve the community and promise, actually deliver those savings that are promised in the original CapEx, right? That's really where Mono Pacific comes in in terms of how we want to operate as a developer is really fulfill these promises long-term. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thanjan, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I wanted to personally invite you to our summer solstice networking event that's happening on the day of the summer solstice, which is Wednesday, June 21st from 6 to 10 p.m. at Hudson Hall, which is in Jersey City, New Jersey, which is very close to Manhattan. We've been doing this event for several years now. It's a great opportunity to network with other people in the renewable energy field. And we'll also have some of our guests that we've interviewed in the past. It's $35 to attend, and we're raising money for two different charities. One is the Boys and Girls Club, and the other is Let's Share the Sun Foundation, which we've done two podcast interviews about. If you're interested in potentially sponsoring the event, please email us at info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-N-E-U energy.com. The Eventbrite for this event will be on the notes of the podcast. We look forward to seeing all of you there. It'll be here before you know it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm excited in this episode of the podcast to have Sarah Djokovic. She's the Energy Policy and Project Manager at Mana Pacific. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Benoit. Happy to be here. Yeah, definitely. I'm happy to have you on the podcast. I think you could provide a lot of great insights on the work that you're doing and the exciting work that Mana's doing. It would be great if you could give like a brief introduction of what you do there. And most of what we've done on the podcast interviews interview a lot of developers about opportunities, primarily in the Northeast Mid-Atlantic. So it'd be great to get your unique perspective because development's unique to the location that you're developing. And so it would really be great to hear your unique perspective. Awesome. Definitely agree. Developing in the Pacific is very different, I would imagine, from developing in New York and New Jersey in the Northeast. Mono Pacific, we are a renewable energy developer based in Maui, Hawaii. And so we develop projects of various sizes. We're technology agnostic, but most of our projects are solar and battery storage. So that's really my focus and expertise. And all of our projects are in Hawaii and elsewhere in the Pacific. So small island developing states that really cover a third of the globe geographically. You're the policy manager and project manager. So you've seen how almost each different area is totally different. Can you talk about, for example, the team one, is it the Community Solar Prize or the Coalition Mm -hmm. Community Solar Prize? Talk about that project. And I know it's been highlighted. Is that a Department of Energy program? It's not really a grant. It's more of a prize and an accelerator process. And so that's with the Department of Energy and with their National Community Solar Partnership. So that was really focused on two of our projects in Molokai as a co-developer with their co-developer, Shake Energy. And so those are two community solar projects around three megawatt DC And it's focusing on 100% community ownership. So it's really the state of Hawaii's first ever 100% community owned and designed projects, period. 
let alone having them be the island of Molokai's first community solar projects. So a lot of firsts going on, which is great. And we were very excited to have one community power accelerator prize. So I really led that initiative and went through the whole proposal. And I'm currently doing the learning lab and technical assistance with the Department of Energy. So that's a great current opportunity that I'm involved in. And it's a great prize because I think developers, there's so many grants and things to apply to. And you and I have spoken about this before of, oh, do we go to this one or how do we really decide where to allocate our resources and time? And similar to Renew Energy, Mono Pacific is a very nimble team and we have a lot of people covering a large scope of responsibilities. While I'm the energy policy manager, I'm also a project manager. I focus in many different areas and wear a lot of different hats. So about 20% or maybe 15% of what I focus on is policy and the rest is really projects and working with technology partners. Really, what are the next steps to get this built and actually constructed as fast as possible? When I saw this prize, it really addresses smaller, more nimble community solar and renewable energy developers to give them the resources to build more projects. It's not just, oh, good for you, we're going to give you this money in this award for what you've already done. That's one part of it, right, with our projects on Molokai. However, it really focuses on empowering developers, giving them the resources, progressing through the phases and getting access to more funding. And the Community Power Accelerator platform that the DOE heads has over $5 billion worth of investments that the Mono Pacific team and the other 24 winners can put all of our projects on, gain access to some of that capital funding technical assistance, progressing through the learning lab, speaking with other developers all around the country and, hey, what's your process with the utility in Texas like? Or working with this cooperative somewhere else in the country and people in Alaska, Puerto Rico, we have one winner from. So being able to represent Hawaii and also the island of Molokai, where we're developing these two projects for the Hawahu Energy Cooperative, completely community-owned, designed, Molokai is one of the most highly populated islands of Native Hawaiians left. And there's a lot of, you know, lower, moderate income households there, super high prices. So this is a very, very important project in terms of getting this done. And we've been very patient with working with the utility and HECO and this happening. So yeah, very excited about the prize and felt really good to really lead this initiative and progress through and excited to get to the next phases. Well, that's really exciting and the first of its kind project and kudos to the team at Mana for doing that. We have obviously a lot of developers who listen to the podcast. Is this prize like an annual prize? I know you mentioned some of the different participating developers and how many developers. Is it a rolling process or is it something done once a year or how does that work as far as the application? To the best of my knowledge, it is going to be an annual prize. I believe because of the IRA and all of the funding that's been made available to way more grants and initiatives by the DOE that this is their first really test run on how this kind of prize will go in terms of they're really looking for to see, is this money and is our assistance actually going to lead to more projects entering the pipeline of these 25 companies? Yeah. And to my knowledge, they're planning on releasing it every single year so. Highly encourage more developers to apply. And it's very clear that they also select people that may have some experience, may have a lot of community solar development experience, or may have no experience whatsoever. So, oh, I haven't developed a community solar project before, but I really want to start or I want to introduce it in my community. Definitely apply to keep in mind the main factors that the prize looks at is so do these projects deliver what they call meaningful benefits? 
So there's five meaningful benefits that it really looks at, which off the top of my head, I believe is serving LMI customers, low to moderate income, producing an adequate amount of energy savings, grid resiliency and stability, community ownership, and then also equitable workforce development models. So the two projects for the Oahu Cooperative and Molokai actually check off all five of those. However, to be eligible, you only really need to check off two. So they encourage an expansion into the more meaningful benefits as you progress through this phase. We're just very lucky that we have done a lot of the work the last two years with our co-development partner in the cooperative to really get a lot of these benefits already integrated and also expanding into more energy savings is never going to be a bad thing. So that's really one of our main aims, progressing into the further phases and really becoming a more robust community solar developer. And those five things that the prize has determined are really important things. I feel like in every community solar project and it ends up coming into that when you like do the RFP or the response to the RFP. So I think it's also very helpful for developers to think about that because sometimes they forget about the community engagement. They have a great site for solar, but then there's so much other when you're involving the community. So it's pretty interesting. It's very apparent as well whenever I speak with project investors or people that are responsible for underwriting projects and really managing these assets long term. Is there such a lack of Visibility, in many cases, sadly, on community engagement and ownership models and looking at things like cooperative models or even long-term O&M, these are supposed to be 20 to 30-year assets. And if you're not putting any money into that process beyond having it built, then is it really going to serve the community and promise, actually deliver those savings that are promised in the original CapEx, right? That's really where Mono Pacific comes in in terms of how we want to operate as a developer is really fulfill these promises long-term. And I know you're smiling, so you probably have many thoughts on that, but yeah. The community engagement piece is one of the hugest parts of the project. Obviously, Sierra knows that, you know, my company were developing one of the first community solar projects for the New York Housing Authority. And that was like the priority for the Housing Authority. How are you going to engage the community? And unfortunately, like our competition really didn't focus on that as much as we did. But I think that's like a very important thing. Like, for example, the New Jersey had a community solar solicitation for their program for year one and two. And the winners were the ones who are really able to talk to and get the community to support the project. And that's how they were able to differentiate and win those projects. One of the other interesting points that you talk about, too, is O&M. I think a lot of developers are focused on building the cheapest project so that they could get the highest development fee but becomes very challenging sometimes for like an asset owner, whether they're buying a project, how to model it, depending on the equipment, and obviously what sort of O&M plan that they're going to have ongoing. I know O&M has become like a passion for you talking to different people in the industry. Can you talk more into why O&M is so important when you're developing and building these projects? Congratulations on the community solar project, by the way. Very exciting project to see new energy going into that space. Like you're saying, it's not something that most developers necessarily focus on. It's often treated wrongly as an afterthought of, oh, we'll get there once we're in this point in construction or, oh, we'll figure it out with this contractor or this third party operator or that's the asset owner and manager's problem, not our problem, right? The ding dong ditch development model is very popular, especially in the Pacific, unfortunately, because the markets are very spread out, very small. The energy prices are very high, a lot of risk that go into it. Insurance costs are insane. And so with that, you really want to encourage this development and really go in, fly out, 
do what you need to do, PC, complete, pack it up, which unfortunately leads projects to breaking within the first two to five years. No one is there to fix it. And then you have a complete waste of resources and time into these products. You have governments donating solar modules and no one is there to put them together. So many inefficiencies. And I think that's really where my focus on workforce development and O&M come into it. It's such an essential piece to actually building something. You can't go the last 98% or 95% and expect it to be at 100. So actually delivering it and completing it, that's really where I personally focus on is, yes, finding more opportunities, starting companies, Starters are very important and also people who follow through and actually leave a positive impact when you go. It's kind of the leave no trace, actually do what you promise. And that's something that's very important in the Pacific, especially, is if you promise and overpromise on the beginning and you get the RFP, you go to tender, you start building the project, you get the modules, you try to go cheap, 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 and then you build a project and it starts underperforming or it breaks and no one is there and you didn't train anyone and you didn't employ the local community at all and it had no community buy-in, you're not going to have a very good reputation, particularly in the Pacific where they're used to countries and companies and people coming in and taking or trying to make money and profit off of their local resources and then leaving. The Kingdom of Tongo, which is one area where we work in, is the only Pacific Island country that hasn't been colonized. And so energy in that aspect is so important because their prices are so high right here. We pay maybe 15 cents. Hawaii's maybe 30 cents, 40 cents. In the Pacific Islands, you can have above a dollar and 10 for one kilowatt hour, which is crazy. When you search up highest electricity prices in the world, they don't even list it. They list, I believe, some Scandinavian country. Maybe it was Denmark that maybe has closer to 60 cents or 50 cents. So it's very unfortunately invisible. And I think all of the climate impacts now are giving more visibility to the Pacific. But it really is no joke. And whenever I travel there and meet people who live there, and their livelihoods depend on having energy that is cheap and works and is reliable and also isn't putting more fossil fuels into our global economy. It's such a upfront and in-your-face reality of how important and how deep it is rather than, oh, we're going to build this massive project. And it's obviously great, right, to have gigawatts and gigawatts of projects in the mainland and across the world being built. The Pacific is not adding carbon emissions really that much to our global production. So it's more about rather than, oh, we're preventing climate change and all of these things and climate mitigation, those are important. And also it's more about economic freedom and energy independence and creating resiliency and also proof of concept that a community very far out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean can be 100% renewable. And that shows that other small communities, countries can also be 100% renewable. It's scaling down what is possible. And this is always said, you know, on the front lines of climate change, but it really is true. And when I visit there, it hits way deeper and more emotional to the work that I'm doing rather than, oh, great, like I'm doing my day-to-day job and this project may or may not get built. I really do care so much in the O&M and the final outcome and the long-term maintenance and operation because it hasn't been paid attention to and it really is dire. It is a make or break situation. If you build a project, you have to make sure that it's going to run. Otherwise, it's yes, maybe your savings and whoever's owning the project is getting screwed over, but you're really screwing over the community, which for me is definitely not in my scope of what I want to be doing and adding to. So yeah. There are so many points that you hit on and I agree with you 
about that. You know, reputation is so huge. I mean, the industry is actually relatively small if you really think about it. So people talk, obviously, and it's about doing things the right way and helping the community. And that was really like great. And obviously with energy prices so high, it really impacts the economics for that population and any way that you could help like minimize or give them the freedom and have localized energy instead of importing a lot of energy to the islands. That's huge. Mm -hmm. I read that half your life you spent in Hawaii. Do you think that's helped with what you do? Obviously, you were mentioning all these different areas in Hawaii and that project and all the demographic information. I understand what you're saying because a lot of these places I don't really know of. Can you talk to like how that has maybe helped with what you do because you know a lot, you visit a lot for work, but then spending a lot of time there. Because I think really at the end of the day, like development is local. When you go to Virginia, if it's a California developer coming in, there's a lot of hesitancy. But if it's someone from the community, the company has an office there. It just seems like it's a lot easier to develop. I always say development is local. Like you have to have a presence there to be able to succeed. No, I for sure agree. And to talk on the Hawaii piece, due to growing up in the Bay Area and all of our family businesses being based there, it ended up being a part-time living situation. So it was since I believe seven years old, going to Hawaii very frequently and spending time there and very much integrating into what it would be like to live on an island. And Hawaii is very remote. I know we associate it as being a part of the U.S., right? But it was really part of the U.S. not very long ago. And its story, that's a whole other (laughs) thought bubble we can go into. But especially living on a coastline, seeing the change of the beaches, of sea level rise, houses are falling into the water that were not falling into the water 10 years ago that I could see with my own eyes and having people leave and move off island because of concerns or houses being sold and big hotels going up and people going, oh, vacation, it's a great place to go to be a tourist. Yes, they are beautiful places. And if we're not protecting that natural beauty and if we're not respecting it and really reminding ourselves, okay, who is this for, right? I'm not a Pacific Islander. I'm from California, right? So that is something that I am very aware of. And even though, yes, I do have experience living in an island and understanding a little bit of what that would be like. I have no idea what it's like to live in a developing nation, small island developing state in the middle of the Pacific with very minimal resources. Entering these spaces as a developer, that's why I also decided to work for Monona Pacific is because our view, it's not just about inclusivity, but it's about being led by what the needs are and being more of a listener and a learner always not, oh, hey, we know what's best for you. I know what technology that you need to solve your problem. It's very much entering that space, listening, really just opening our eyes up to what the situation is and what people want and what people's views are and having that guide the process of development. And even as an example, when I was in New Zealand and I was working with a few members from the local Tongan community, and with that, I attended a Tonga New Zealand Business Council meeting where I entered the room and it was me and 30 to 50 Tongans 
and just me. I'm way younger than everyone else in the room and I'm female and white and Californian. Obviously, you're going to expect skepticism and people saying, oh, who is this? What is going on? Right. And sitting in that discomfort is something that I've gotten used to of it makes sense. It's not why are they questioning me or whatnot? It's like, oh, yeah, this makes sense. Like I'm me and I'm entering this space and this is their safe space together as a community to talk and discuss the problems of their home. And after those three hours, right, and you sit and you listen and you ask people questions and talking to people and just even getting to know their stories, culture in the Pacific is just having normal conversation and to know people and developing that bit of trust of, oh, you're a human being. I'm a human being. We both have needs and this is the situation that you're facing. When you are coming with a genuine intention, people can read that and that type of discomfort goes away because you realize, okay, we're on the same page here, even if there's something that I'll never be able to understand about living in that type of an environment and with that dire of a situation. I still know in my heart that I'm here to help and that I'm here to be a learner and they're guiding the conversation rather than me saying, this is me and this is what I'm doing. And, you know, I'm 23 and I know everything, right? That's not how I feel. So hopefully that answered your inquiry there. Yeah, that answered my inquiry. I mean, I think to be successful in life, you have to be transparent, obviously no ego, listen, especially the things that you're doing requires a custom solution. If you come in as a young person or even older and act like you know everything, it'll immediately turn people off. And the best way people could tell, especially in person, when you're really genuinely trying to learn. And so what you said is true. That answers my question for sure. Awesome. As another example of really working to solve the kind of problems that are very deep and multifaceted with something like workforce development, as an example, that's something that in the kingdom of Tonga, especially is a huge issue and elsewhere in the Pacific, where I've talked to the UN ambassador saying that maybe we'll hire someone that's a floating O&M person going around and helping maintain these solar projects. But we don't really know how to solve this complex of a problem because there are people leaving these places. There are people ages 16, 17, 18, 20 and above going from Tonga to New Zealand to pick fruit for next to nothing and sending that money home in remittances to Tonga which makes up almost 40% of the nation's GDP. So imagine if they were able to work at home as renewable energy installers, operators, designers, engineers, and travel around the region working in those jobs, the kind of money that would be sent back and made in Tonga or in other Pacific Island nations would be such a game changer. So that's a big passion aspect for me. Because especially with my background in policy and how that intersects with economics and renewable energy development, that is something that for sure needs to change. With Tonga, they're trying to get to 100% renewable within the next five to 10 years. And with our projects that we're doing there and the projects of many other experienced developers, that's going to happen at an even faster pace, which is remarkable. And it's a great thing. And at the same time, there's so much other work that needs to catch up at simultaneously to really make sure it's not even just the grid and the renewable energy penetration, which is a whole other issue in itself, but also the workforce and people being ready to have that kind of an energy system at home that's really creating a regenerated workforce and really making a renewable energy economy in the Pacific. And then what happens when everyone gets to 100% renewable, which would be, of course, great in itself, but you need to be able to make sure that those people can be upskilled. And it's not just, oh, we train them for this one project. Our product is built. Good. We don't pay attention to those people anymore. 
It's can we put them into roofing jobs or other construction jobs, you know, if they're a rooftop installer and have them work on other things or in other industries. And that's something that I'm in close conversations with the government in New Zealand and their local solar industry, how to really make this supporting other nations, right? It's not just these isolated communities with these problems, but move the workforce around in a way that supports what needs to happen at home primarily first, not just, okay, we have all these people and we need to figure it out and not help each other. A bit of a side tangent. As a leading authority in the solar industry, life gets very busy. In addition to traveling the world as a speaker and for my entrepreneurial ventures, I'm a son, friend, investor, and entrepreneur. And when it comes to delivering a great sounding show for my listeners, I choose Podcast Laundry. All I have to do is record and send and the rest is done. They do the dirty work of podcasting for me. Yes, social media graphics, quotes, show notes, master editing, and much more. All I have to do is record. So if you're a busy podcaster like me with an engaged audience and want to free up your time to do more of what you love like going to the gym or spending time with loved ones go to podcastlaundry.com to schedule your consultation or call 347-871-8273 that's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273 but that's transformational right you're creating Mm -hmm. opportunity and growth income a lot higher than what they've experienced in the past. Because I don't think people talk about these things when you develop a solar project. If you look at it now, the biggest job creator is renewable energy. Probably we need so many people with this energy transition. People thought, I didn't think this tech would continue to hire clean energy was going to overtake it in the transition. And it's not just for the islands, but all over the U.S. internationally. There's so many job opportunities. Things are happening so quickly within the sector. It's continuing to mm-hmm. evolve and in parts of the U.S., like in the Midwest, where it was coal country, you could transition to be a solar installer and that job can't be replaced by AI. This moment in time. That's <laughs> true. So that's interesting because that's an important aspect to it. We really don't know about really the long term impact of what we're building right now. It was actually in another one of your podcast episodes that I heard this statistic of 70 percent of all of our solar installations have been built in the last two years. And I don't know when that podcast episode was, but when I heard that, I was like, wow, I was not aware. And that shows the newness of really even solar, which people view as, you know, decades old technology. And there's obviously people that have been working in it forever. And you've been working in it a long more than I have, right? So I know, I know Rex were in there too. So <laughs> but <laughs> I'm very curious on what the long-term impacts and how we're going to adjust in a maintenance perspective and grid perspective. And even I was on the phone with someone from Siemens saying, yeah, there's some panels that we have to replace in over half of our installations that the manufacturer doesn't even exist anymore. So how do you do that, right? There's so many things that you wouldn't think about because right now we have everything at our disposal relatively. And what's going to happen 10 years down the road with things like recycling and all these technologies that We have all the answers. It's just connecting all the dots. It's amazing to talk about how quickly every year is the most year of solar installation. Usually, as I've seen it, is like we could continue to be creative on coming up with solutions with recycling. A lot of panel manufacturers that were supposedly tier one Bloomberg, (laughs) like (laughs) don't exist. And also the bifacial panels are really popular now. It wasn't also different sizes, different wattages. The racking might not even match. 
So mm-hmm. definitely challenges, obviously, with the transition. But I think there's so many smart and innovative people in the industry and sector that will figure it out. Even the O&M issues, because I think a lot of projects are underperforming what their spec mm-hmm. initially is supposed to be. But I think people are coming up with creative solutions. People are getting smarter and figuring out how to do this. And at the end of the day, it's about financial returns. Sorry, this is the finance part of me speaking, but you know, like- No, it's all good. (laughs) Most successful companies and projects are the ones that are going to continue to innovate and build Mm -hmm. those projects. Can you talk about the work that you're doing with the UN? I know I'm like transitioning to something else, but I thought it was interesting because how you're representing MANA at the UN and it's interesting because you talked about this in the beginning of the podcast, like how the company is very entrepreneurial. Everyone's doing a lot of different things and then mm-hmm. skill sets that are required to be successful in this type of job. So it'd be interesting to hear the work that you're doing. Yes. So defining my role with the UN is I'm really a company liaison to the UN. So that was really a big reason why being based in New York is very helpful. As we know, it's not the largest epicenter of renewable energy, but it is a large epicenter of finance and policy relative to DC. So being close to the UN, I mean, I always thought that I wanted to work in the UN and wanted to do development that way and make an impact that way. And being in the private sector, I definitely can say that I enjoy the private sector. So my role at the UN particularly is I coordinate quite a bit with some of the UN ambassadors to a few of the Pacific Island countries that we work in. And frankly, they have a lot of projects on their plate and a lot of initiatives on their plate, and they're doing diplomacy at the same time. And the UN does not have as many resources as it's perceived to have. So really creating that line of communication, which is very weak, honestly, within the UN and the private sector of what products are you working on? How can we assist each other? How can we find creative solution financing, blended finance models? Because the main ways to get funded by the UN for a project would be through the GEF, which is the Global Environment Fund, or the GCF, the Green Climate Fund. Talking to many people high up in the UN, and we talk about this quite a lot, is it takes a lot of time to get funding from a governmental bank or from the UN or any other official stream of capital that is it from the private sector. So in that way, I do a lot of finance modeling with, okay, how can we blend use seeing it as government funding is just a cherry on top. Yes, if we do have project risk insurance or political risk insurance or something like, you know, a feasibility study that's seen as additional. And in my opinion, a good project is not something that requires governmental funding. I know I'm kind of going off on a little bit tangent here from the UN role, but that's really something that I've found in my work and in my coordination with the ambassadors and attending UN events, coordinating with Sustainable Energy for All, where companies can put voluntary commitments and say, hey, I promise to put XYZ megawatts or gigawatts in the ground by 2035, 2045. I plan to hire XYZ people in industry. That way you can really see what other companies are doing, have visibility with the UN, have context, have conversation. To be clear, there aren't many ways to really engage with the UN in a way other than saying, hey, this is what we're doing. This is what you're doing. Let's talk at conferences. It's a lot of discussion, which is needed. However, the actual implementation of solutions, it's at a slower pace than I personally like to work at. And that's why being in the private sector and being a liaison, a middle person in between, but primarily being hired by the private sector, right? Mono Pacific, I work for them. I represent our interests. I am not a diplomat. 
I'm not a policy person. I, in that way, coordinate and utilize the policy tools available through the UN in New York. And we are very fortunate to partner with some UN accredited NGOs and other NGOs like Blue Planet Alliance, where we all attend those kind of events together and we represent similar interests. But we are not an NGO and we don't operate that same conversational speed. And it's more about implementing as an implementation partner rather than being an advocacy partner for many of these projects. I mean, as you know, we are a developer. So with you being in charge of development, I know you know what the implementation <laughs> takes. Definitely. It's a lot of work and we could go into that and that could be a whole podcast in itself. I think what's unique to what you said is I think people think that the UN has a lot of resources, but I think it's great that you're helping or being a liaison because I think you could provide a lot of helpful information so that they could come up with initiatives or policies so that and other developers in the industry. And that makes total sense. It's interesting, the work that you're doing, and I appreciate you doing it because the more people that we could educate with the proper bringing real world experience into how mm -hmm. things get developed into the public sector or into the, like the UN, I think is really helpful. And it's something that we all have to do. And I've spent a lot of time actually working with different government officials on the IRA and now interpretation of the IRA, mm -hmm. that DOE call about the 10% adder for community engagement. Mm -hmm. So it's very important. And I agree with you. I can't wait for a time when solar doesn't need incentives. A lot of people know that all energy assets in the U.S. do get incentives. Solar, it's been challenging mm -hmm. because the incentives have been not long-term. So it's been creating what people call yeah. solar coaster. Hopefully the IRA is going to be a 10-year <laughs> incentive. Yeah. And, you know, solar, no matter what people say, is the cheapest source of electricity in the United States. So mm -hmm. excited about the future. We need a lot of like young people to take the mantle and push the renewable energy transition forward. I'm really excited. You're relatively young and you're very passionate about it. I think it's interesting too how we met and then... What really impressed me was the initiative. Anything that I told you, you would take the initiative and go even further than what I thought you would be. So we met Sierra just to let everyone know that Renew Energy has a summer solstice and a holiday party. And I just fully met Sierra this past December at our holiday party. And you met a lot of great people. I don't know if you want to talk about the event. because We're having our summer solstice event coming up. This interview will be aired before that, which is the actual summer solstice, which will be Wednesday, June 21st, 2023, which we'll have on the link of the podcast. But how did you find out about the event? I think there was about 120 renewable energy professionals. So I think someone, mm -hmm. I guess, relatively new to the New York renewable energy yep. thing is a great way of meeting a lot of people. So it would be great to kind of get your perspective. Some of the things that we obviously talked about in the pre-interview, which I think is really important for people to know. When I first got to New York and moved here, I just knew that, all right, I want to hit the ground running and I need to meet people. And of course, a part of that is I spent days going through all of the renewable energy events available in New York that existed. And to my surprise, there really weren't that many. And a lot of them were these kind of expensive webinars that you go online and you do, okay, learn Solar 101 and whatnot. And immediately the Renew Energy event caught my eye. And it was really the first one I attended since being in New York. And go, oh, that sounds fun. You know, holiday drinks and professionals and all. I'll go to Jersey City for that. That sounds great. And so it was really wonderful to be able to meet you and, you know, meet people like Jesse and through that talk to people like Amanda and really see, okay, this is a lot smaller 
than I thought. And of course, in New York, I would say most of people I know work in finance and in that world of consulting. I really haven't met another person working in renewable energy here my age, except for people in the carbon credit world and space. So it was a really wonderful event and very fun and networking, whether it's networking, meeting mentors, making friends, making connections, reading a great book in the case of meeting you and having that connection. So, (laughs) Well, I think what's interesting about that was just you mentioned like Amanda, Amanda Bybee. I think you're talking. Mm -hmm. She's the head of the O&M Cooperative. She was actually on the podcast when I met with her afterwards. She was talking about her passion for O&M. So I said, oh, you should listen to the podcast interview with Amanda. And you and Amanda had a great conversation. And when you talked to her, and the interesting thing too was you met Jesse Waters at the event who mm-hmm. has an O&M company. Him and I used to work together at Vanguard Energy Partners, which is the interesting thing which I don't think I told you was he was the one who suggested that I interview Amanda on the podcast. You, I guess, were shadowing him like one day on the field. And then you met with Jersey City that I mentioned about Amanda. And the next suggestion I had was to read a book about development. We'll have it in the notes of the podcast. It's basically a solar project development book, like the 101. Do you remember the exact name of the book? I believe it's just called Development in the Solar Industry. I have the cover floating in my mind's eye right now. So I believe that's the name. I'll have it in the notes of the books because the authors still receive royalties on it. So Albie was joking. Oh, yes. Thank you for like calling the <laughs> people about the book because, you know, I'll get some royalties. Yes, <laughs> yes. Kudos. Exactly. Yeah, I recommend so many people to read this book. Sierra read through the whole book. What she did, which I was surprised, was she took the initiative to reach out to all the authors of the different chapters and set up an informational interview with them. And then it was interesting because I was in Long Beach for the Intersolar Conference, and she suggested that I should meet with Albie Long, who wrote the interconnection piece of that book, which I thought was pretty educational when I first read it. And then it was great to meet him in person. He was surprised that I remembered all these different aspects of the chapter. I haven't read in like maybe five to seven years. By the way, when people come up to me about the podcast, Hey, I listened to episode 29 and the 30th minute you talked about this. Do you remember it? <laughs> I could kind of relate with yeah. what he was saying, which was pretty funny. And then he's what sure. their company that has an innovative solution. So Sierra thought it was helpful for me. So it's interesting because I think really how to differentiate yourself is like doing these extra things that most people wouldn't do. Reading the book, getting into the details, networking both informational and then face-to-face. The solar industry, you'd be surprised. I mean, now I've been in the industry, I can't believe it, like 15 years. And 15 years ago, I was telling everyone solar is going to be- So old, Benoit. (laughs) (laughs) What are you talking about? I'm like, I'm actually pretty young, but uh, it's just like all my career, I've been in energy and solar since college. I feel like I have many years to mostly add value to the industry. What you're doing is pretty amazing. We need a whole generation of younger people to come in and really lead the sector. And I'm really excited about what you're doing and the initiative that you're taking. What got you passionate about renewable energy? It was your internship, right? Was that your first experience in renewables? Definitely agree with you on the initiative. That that has been really my personal mantra is you never really know what's going to happen, right? If I hadn't gone to the Renew Energy event, who knows? I would never be on this podcast, most likely. All of those things that we talked about would never have met any of those people. And 
so many things can happen just by making one decision and saying, no, you know what? I'm going to go for it and I'm going to see what happens. And being your true self for sure. Exactly. It definitely connects to how I first got involved with working for Mono Pacific because it was during COVID. And so my background is in policy. So I was an international relations major at UC Berkeley and I knew that climate change was really my issue of choice. I grew up primarily in the outdoors, very, very active person, very connected when I'm outside and I'm doing something outside. And that's really when I feel the most at peace. And so protecting that is something I feel very close to and very passionate about. And I knew that climate was something that I wanted to address, but I didn't specifically know that it was energy, right? I hadn't really thought about which avenue I was going to go at. I actually had had this, you know, policy internship lined up in D.C. It wasn't really something that I really cared about. COVID happened and all the internships got stripped away. And so during it, I was like, you know, I'm just going to find and look at and get on the phone with people in companies that I really do want to work at. And so primarily a lot of them ended up being solar companies. I had invested quite a bit and done a lot of research on companies like Enphase and other things. And I was like, you know, I really should learn more about this in the technical aspects not just rooftop, but large scale renewable energy. I really knew pretty minimal when I first started getting into it. Of course, you know what a solar panel is roughly and you know what a wind turbine looks like and you know how dams work and different aspects of that. But I really just started getting on the phone with people asking, hey, can I just have a coffee chat? I think it was middle of COVID winter time and not a single person actually said no to me. I think I reached out to maybe 30 different people over the course of a few weeks. And I just talked to them about what their job was like, what their daily life was like. It wasn't even saying, hey, I want a job from you, but I wanted to learn what it would be like to work in their day to day. And is that something that I would want for myself? Is that company something that I feel connected to? I was speaking to someone at Enfe. It was their head of legal and she had gone to Berkeley, which is why I reached out to her. She connected me to their head of policy who had worked with my current CEO at Canadian Solar because we had been talking about how I grew up part-time in Hawaii. And he said, oh, this company, Mono Pacific, is doing really cool stuff in Hawaii. You should talk to them. Then met Joe, my current CEO, interviewed with the whole team. We clicked immediately. You know, I was really their first official intern. Everyone else had been the founding team and people they'd hired right out of college into full-time roles. So they took a chance on me and it worked out to say the least. So was an intern briefly during COVID. I actually lived in Maui for quite a while working in person. And then my whole senior year, I worked as a full-time employee while doing school and finishing my degree. And upon graduation, I moved to New York and my role got updated and upgraded. And now I'm, of course, working full-time, full-time, even though I've really been full-time for the past two years or year and a half or whatever it is at this point. Oh, that's an amazing story. And that's great to hear. When you're speaking about it, you could hear your passion for it. And it's great. There's so many people who are passionate about climate change, slowing or ending climate change, and obviously sustainability and renewable energy. So it's exciting that like this topic, a lot more people are aware of and are really motivated to fix what's currently happening. So kudos to everything that you're doing. Oh, thanks, Benoit. I definitely agree. Living in New York, it's not, I don't surround myself with renewable energy young professionals very often, but there's people that are involved in that space and interested in it. And I think there's definitely a generational switch, even in, you know, the carbon credit and carbon offset world, which is a whole other spiral. <laughs> but <laughs> there's definitely a difference between people that fell into it because it could be profitable and people that actually care about sustainability and do want to make sure, okay, wait, let's make sure that these are actually doing something and figuring out the additionality problem. And with ESG and calling it out on 
suspicious parts of ESG. And I think our generation is a bit more <laughs> becoming more conscious on, okay, wait, is this actually doing what it's promising to do? And that's really the main thing I care about is delivering and maintaining integrity. That's really the biggest thing in any industry, like you're saying. People know each other and you recommend each other and you wouldn't Put your neck out for people that you don't believe have integrity and will actually deliver. So the younger generations really pushing on things to make sure that it's real, real change is happening, mm-hmm. which I could go into a lot of detail, but that's for another podcast. Obviously, the Solar Maverick podcast is about entrepreneurship. You're an entrepreneur. It's amazing to hear like your story. And one of the things that I believe we talked about this, like informational interviews, networking, reading is obviously great ways of learning, obviously job experience, doing the development. You mentioned that you read a lot. I read a lot. Be interesting if you have any book suggestions. You should actually start a Solar Maverick book club. It's just I've been too busy developing projects. (laughs) But I wonder if you have any suggestions that has helped you maybe fiction. You know what? Once Yeah, I love fiction. (laughs) I love fiction too, but then I'm like, oh well. Once I started my company, I only could read books on nonfiction, entrepreneurship, self-help, all those things. Right, yeah. Reading fiction before that. And I should really push myself to go back to reading fiction because I really did enjoy it. But I'm curious, do you have any like book suggestions that you think the demographic, the Solar Maverick podcast? Mm, Yes, I've been waiting for this, the book recommendation. In terms of book suggestions, you know, one that really opened up my mind and view of things. It's called The Sovereignty of Good by Iris Murdoch. And she's a female philosopher, and it really focuses on how do we actually question and live with integrity, live with something like humility. It breaks down pride. It really breaks down a lot of these personality and philosophical questions in a way that how do we actually do this in real life? It has a lot of very interesting questions about nature and our connection with art, humility and spirituality and whatnot. It's a very interesting philosophy book. I haven't read a philosophy book like that before. And uh, it's one that's a bit more digestible. It's really short. It's not a long length for people that want to read that. It definitely was one of my favorites. And another one that's a bit more fun and on a less serious note, it's called How Soccer Explains the World. And it's by Franklin Foer. It should be called How Football Explains the World, but (laughs) it breaks down pretty much all of the soccer teams and the global evolution of the sport and how it connects to policy changes and global changes and world events. And I love history. So that's really actually how I got into policies through history. And I also love sports. So big soccer girl. And with that, also another book. I know I kind of broke down the synopsis up there. You know, it's interesting. I'm really into philosophy. So I've been reading a lot about stoicism and for Marcus Aurelius, who practiced stoicism. There's a author, his name is Ryan Holiday, and he Mm. created like some really interesting books. His first big book on stoicism was Ego is the Enemy. Mm. It's interesting because I'm a huge sports fan of people don't know. And Bill Belichick had all the New England Patriot players read it. And it's been like actually very helpful for me in reacting to different things that happen in life. Mm. It's how you respond to what's happening in people's lives. We're talking about ego before, because one of the things I do see in the industry is a lot of egos and a lot of egos. Mm -hmm. That could be a whole other podcast, but no, I can't really get into that. (laughs) Yo, I don't think it could be. So even myself, I'm like, let me separate myself from the situation. Let me like Mm -hmm. not have an ego toward it. Let me look at it rationally. And then let's find out the best way to do it. Because unfortunately, like Mm -hmm. 
sometimes it's hard not to get your emotions in certain situations. So. Very attached. Yeah. yeah. Respond, not react. A great little phrase there. And building off on that, you know, one concept that also really helped me in my own personal development is learning about what humility actually is. And I'll never forget really realizing that humility isn't about underplaying and overplaying yourself are two sides of the same coin. It's inaccurate. It's not a clear view of how you yourself show up in the world. And so having real humility is seeing yourself clearly, seeing your strengths clearly, seeing your weaknesses clearly, being able to have a still mirror, if you will, or a still lake of how you show up, especially as you know, a young woman too. I think there's a lot of pressure of, oh, am I coming off to this or to that or not enough this or not enough that and really realizing, you know what? See myself clearly as I am. This is my intention. This is really know thyself and realizing that is humility, right? Is to be able to own your own strengths, own your weaknesses, own who you are. It's not, oh, she's bossier, doing this or doing that, that really changed my own view of who people are and being able to see, okay, underplaying and overplaying are more similar than what's in between. Actually, a lot of people don't see who they really are in reality. Good point. And a great way to end the podcast as well. Sierra, I appreciate you making the time out of your schedule. If people wanted to learn more about you, Sierra, Mana Pacific, what's the best way for them to do that? I would say one, learning more about Mono Pacific is our website, which is just monopacificallowercaps.com. And for me, you can feel free to reach out to me. My work email is really my first and last name with a period in between at monopacific.com. So I always answer my email. Also LinkedIn, I'm very responsive on there. I don't have social media really. So LinkedIn is actually the closest thing I have to it. <laughs> but it's good because I have a lot of time to answer emails. So yeah, I would say those are the best avenues. Great. Well, this has been a great episode of the podcast. Thank you again, Sarah, for being on today. Awesome. Thanks, Benoit. It was great to talk. Definitely. You did a great job. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-N-E-U-Energy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangen and Kevin Y. Brown. 